What is this? And will it continue? Spoils only time will tell. At first sight, it appears we've descended into the depths of holy hell. Kill my ass. Let the immortal and prophetic words of local dunce Jesse Burford ring out over all of Married at First Sight Nation as we, you and me, listener, react in real time after Married at First Sight on this Monday, February 6th, here on the Bachelor of Hearts podcast feed. Max Quinn is me. My beloved co-host Xavier RN is simply not watching maths, and so these podcasts are going to be solo, sporadic, all off-the-dome reaction minisodes. I am recording on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Hi to you, and thanks for being here. If you are a First Nations Australian listening, I want to pay my respect to elders past, present, and emerging. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up, who were the winners and losers of the first maths dinner party of season 10? I have some thoughts. And I want to talk about everything going on with Melissa, the mom getting the root rat edit, and her partner, the impossible quiet Disney adult named Josh. Let's start, though, with a quick whip around of a who's who in the zoo uh, and whether or not they're driving the plot. One thing I'm noticing paying attention to this show for the first time is that this is barely a love show, even compared to a show like The Bachelor, which we want to be more about drama. This show, probably also, this is not news to anybody here, but this is a drama show, right? This show is about drama, manipulation, who's doing it with a side quest about people falling in love. And so if you are not driving the drama, you are not dominating the discourse and your screen time is going to be limited because you're relegated to side quest status. So I would break it down like this. We have 10 couples, 20 people total, and I think this show has four main characters at the moment, and the previews have told us that a fifth main character will emerge later this week, at least a fifth, in the form of the man who I would describe as, but we already have Grant Denyer at home, Shannon. And so if we're talking about who the main characters are so far, I'm going to say to you, season villains Harrison and Jesse, I think, are the main characters, as well as the Mel's. There's the horny goat lead Melissa, uh, and also the um, suspicious CEO, Melinda. So these are the four characters who I think are driving the conflict most of the time. And because they're doing that, I think probably all of their partners, like they're the people who the drama is happening to. And I think that they form sort of like the best supporting actress in a drama series kind of role. So those I would say are your four main characters and their four partners. And then we sort of hit this middle ground of characters who don't drive the plot yet, but I think might in the future. I think about it like baseball. In baseball, they have um, this area off to the side of the field called a bullpen where a team will keep their pitches to like warm up their throwing arms before they then like go out and pitch later in the game. You can kind of see maybe where this is going. Like for our purposes, these are the couples who are not quite yet 
ready for prime time. Like all the action is happening elsewhere. But in the first couple of episodes, the show's already told us that there might be some drama here. And so we're going to put Grant Daniel Shannon uh, and his partner, Caitlin, here, as well as from one of the other episodes, the TikTok creator called Janelle and her husband, God, so feel so weird to say husband, the aspiring crypto bro, Adam. The rest of the couples, I think, are kind of all embarking on this love side quest. Um, It's only like it's four of the 10 couples. So 40% of the cast are actually falling in love here. Cameron and Lyndall, um, Tani and Ollie. Then there's Hot Duncan and his wife called Alyssa, who's the Mormon. And then Dandy, who we've not discussed on this show at all. Uh, The older couple, uh, Dan and Sandy, who did have a very beautiful wedding, but don't seem to be long for this show. And look, as much as I'd love to focus in on their love stories, we're barely seeing it. You know, like all we can do is wish them all the very best as we move on to the winners and losers from the first dinner party of season 10. And this is my first dinner party as well. I don't remember watching a dinner party before. When we talked about this on the Bachelor of Hearts podcast before, we've talked about how The Bachelor sometimes drinks from the chalice of maths or like borrows from other reality shows. And it's generally around things that really, really work. So for Married at First Sight, that seems to have been this thing, the dinner party, which The Bachelor has tried to emulate in like its Buller banquet or in last season, there was a literal dinner setting at a cocktail party at the women's house. And they make for great locations, I suppose, for drama, great points of impetus. The man, John, who is one of the relationship experts on the show. Who can say what he does? He's just, he's the relationship expert. And he says that the dinner party is important to the show because now the contestants in the experiment will be exposed to outside influences and opinions in a social setting. I wrote that down because I thought it was really interesting. Um, And the first person to really like bear the brunt of that was of course our metalhead celebrant, Jesse, who is just, coming across as a big baby and definitely is one of our biggest losers on the week. I've seen people online saying that he's giving incel to them, like he's our in-season in-celebrant. And I can see it, right? Like in the way that he speaks about women, particularly uh, his partner Claire, like it's so reductive and in my opinion rooted in that really clear insecurity in his own fragile masculinity. I don't know how much time we have to get to it, but basically like he talked in a previous episode about not being enough for her because all of the things that he provides are things that Claire already has. Right. And that, that insecurity, I think is that thing that is rooted so deeply in that Chan core of around things like Gamergate. We're not going to get too into the conspiracies that have evolved from men being disgusting online uh, in spaces like 4chan, but that's that's sort of like, I, if you're saying he's giving incel, I can kind of see it. But what's sticking out to me, maybe even more, is that he just seems like an asshole. Like the difference, I think, is that with Jesse, I don't particularly see an intent to hurt or hurt through manipulation on a TV show, like someone else who we'll talk about in just a moment. I just see someone who I pity. Um, And I suppose the thing is that I pity him because he's incomplete and 
he doesn't appear to be presented as a man who's really capable of reflecting in order to grow, you know, like the level of self-assuredness does not match the level of self-awareness. And to me, that's extremely sad, first of all, for Jesse, but it also makes him ripe bait, I think, for a reality TV show like this one, which looks to take advantage of people's willingness to to trust the process, for lack of a better word, right? This show is, I think, going to ruin Jesse, based only on the portrayal so far. My guess is Jesse is going to find it very hard to be able to find work as a marriage celebrant after this, you know, like he's doing it entirely unwittingly to himself. There's, yeah, I suppose that's a common thread with Harrison. We'll get to him, but it feels more to me here like Jesse thinks that he is clever, funny, relatable, in confessional, and he's none of these things. And the show goes to every extent to either put this in place or to highlight it. So in tonight's episode, he can't apologize for shushing his wife, Claire, and doing a mean and reductive impression of her without then like putting his foot in his mouth and saying that he doesn't chase girls, which then invalidates poor Claire all over again and means that like the apology that he has given (laughs) pretty much doesn't count, you know? And that means that then he really deservedly, and I was quite pleased to see this, cops it from almost everyone at the dinner party. And I think Claire's giving him every chance to show compassion, to show situational awareness. And the show is telling us that he either can't or doesn't want to, right? He rejects the opportunity to have the private conversation. He does the awful impression of Claire again, and he tries to present himself as the victim. Claire's amassing this army of people who want to like talk badly about how mean Jesse is. I just, I don't know. Jesse for me is a big loser in this episode, in my estimation, because what he thinks that he is, or at least what the show is giving us of what he thinks that he is, and what he appears to be really are so far misaligned. The biggest loser, though, for this dinner party, I think, has to be Harrison. Um, In my opinion, everything that I just said about not feeling an intent to hurt through manipulation with Jesse, I feel it with Harrison. You know, one of the things that I like about the dinner party format is that we'll cut away to the experts who are then giving their opinion. I don't know how they've done this. Like, so basically I think what would have happened is if I'm guessing they've filmed it, there's a cut done in the editing bay and then they've taken it to the experts, the panel of experts, John and the uh, Melinda and who can say anyway. Um, and then they would watch it and commentate on it. And they function as the voice of audience here. Basically, they're our color commentators, giving us the insight, making us feel like we are flyers on the wall in just the same way that they are. And if you watch this episode, you know how the show wants you to feel. And in this case, I pretty much agree with it. The take that the experts give is basically Harrison bad. Harrison is manipulating Bronte. Harrison has questionable motives. And the reason that we come to feel this way 
about Harrison, even in the first place, the reason that we're put in the position to be able to believe what the experts have to say is because of this conversation at the dinner party that makes CEO Melinda one of the episode's biggest winners, and in my opinion, the biggest winner of the episode. Basically what happens here is that Harrison has sold Bronte this bill of goods that like, um, you remember earlier in the season it came out that he had a girlfriend on the outside just before he came in the show anyway. Basically what the, the line that Bronte's now running with and that, that Harrison has sort of convinced her of is like, it's not me who's in the wrong for having a girlfriend on the side before coming into the show, babe. Like it's your friend who outed me who's actually in the wrong. Um, and Bronte believes him for some reason. Actually, I say some reason. The reason is that this is being presented to the couples as a love show, realistically, and I think Bronte desperately wants to fall in love, and she's been told that this sentient bag of fucking lemons, whom she will harry at first sight, is her perfect match. Anyway, she believes him, but the reason that uh, the big winner of the episode is Melinda is that she hears all of this going on. She hears Harrison's story about how it's definitely like Bronte's friend seeking five minutes of fame and setting aside the fact that yes, this woman was also on the bachelor like less than a month ago. Melinda's like, I will be having none of this. Thanks. And really takes it upon herself to make Harrison squirm in this moment. She, I don't know, pulls at the stitches of Harrison's story and one after the other, magically, somehow, they've all come unstitched. He looks like an absolute fool. And when I talk about manipulation, here's where that comes in. Because Harrison basically decides that now that he has been sufficiently embarrassed by Melinda, in fact, it's Bronte who's in the wrong in this situation for not putting enough effort into their relationship. And he tasks her with then, like, having to prove it to him to show him that he's in the relationship because he's put in all the effort to give her the space after he told her that he didn't find her sexually attractive after they'd had sex. Like, this pig. Um, it's it's so putrid. We watch him putting in the legwork with the boys to explain how hard it has been for him. Like, where did they find this nasty man or this man who that they have been able to present as being nasty if I am to be generous it seems um he says i wrote this down i'm not sorry for what i did i don't apologize because i haven't done anything wrong and you can see where this is going to go after the season right um it would be easy for someone like harrison for just about anyone who has been presented in a harsh light on reality tv for actions that they have taken and for situations that they have entered into voluntarily to say, oh, it was the edit, it was the production, it was the a stitch up in the situation, pick your poison there. The reality is that Harrison in this case, whether you say the situation was a stitch up, the editing or the producers did something, right, like all three of those things would have to be true for Harrison to look like the victim that he presents himself as in this situation. And I would argue that before you come on a show called Married at First Sight, I don't know if you're serious about finding love, 
Maybe you should consider yourself to be pre-engaged. To whom I don't know, but if you truly intend to get married and have it work out, don't come into a reality TV show about getting married with options on the outside. So, Harrison, huge loser, both... I'm so... uh, He makes me feel so deflated. And quickly, if you've experienced this type of man, I'm so sorry. Like, what an awful thing to go through. And I do hope in watching this and in having experienced it, that in particular, Bronte is holding her head high and is doing okay, you know. Harrison is a loser in terms of how he comes across. But I also want to say, in a similar Jesse way, he's a loser in the way that it seems like he has played himself by having all of this on the outside before he went in and not expecting someone like Melinda to come in and just tear shreds. Now, before we get out of here, let's talk about Melissa, the woman whose edit is basically that she just wants to bone all the time, and Josh, her mumbling husband. So their wedding episode was last night, but it kind of doesn't feel right not to mention them here, seeing as everything that has happened with them is so interesting, so spectacular, and not to toot my own horn here, listener, but beep, beep, bitch. I told you in episode one of this recap that these two would get partnered up and that their core conflict, as far as the show is concerned, would be that he does not want to fuck and she does. And I was mostly right, okay? So it turns out that Josh actually does want to fuck. It's just that he doesn't want to talk about it or be in any kind of position where it could be assumed that he is fucking on camera. So it's explained here that Josh has Christian conservative parents and that he wants to keep some of the mystique about his intimacy with Melissa between just them. And I want to say on the whole, that's fine. Draw your boundaries. But to the extent that your boundaries involve someone else behaving or not behaving in a particular way within a consensual relationship, I don't know. I kind of think that boundaries need to be articulated in order to be understood by both parties. And probably, (laughs) reflectively, rich coming from me, right? Like that's a hard lesson to learn from experience and especially for people who are conflict averse. I'm speaking for myself um, and probably also doing a bit of armchair psychology for Josh here too. Uh, Like it would not shock me if this meek man who named both of his children after Disney characters were to be conflict avoidant. Um, I want to touch on the Disney thing in a second, but I want to stay on boundaries at the moment. I'm, I'm, I'm on a roll, okay? Uh, look, if Josh communicated his boundaries around sex and talking about sex to Mel, the show did not let us in on that. But the hard lesson, I think, is this, right? If you don't communicate your boundaries and instead assume that your boundaries have been understood simply in your vibe, right? In the way that you come across. And that's really important for Josh because Josh comes across very soft. I don't mean that in uh, any kind of coded way other than that Melissa was presented as someone who wanted 
a big Thor kind of man. Great big muscular Chris Hemsworth and Josh is just a regular looking dude who is a bit, I've said the word meek, but that's the right word in the way that he comes across. Um, anyway, right? So if you don't communicate your boundaries clearly and instead you're like, no, it's in my vibe, I'm sure that they get it, you end up in situations like this where Josh and Mel found themselves at a loggerhead because Mel has like shame spiraled about like, maybe Josh doesn't like her. Maybe he's not attracted to her, even though they've definitely fucked because she's got her own shit as a 40, 41 year old single mom. And Josh for his part has lied to the camera about whether or not they have fucked because that's where he draws his personal line. And they have this big blob about it. Like Melissa's really upset that Josh has lied to producers about their intimacy and Josh is like no I want to keep it to myself like this is this is all stuff that could be solved with healthy communication essentially anyway Disney people like what they like I'm conscious that at the top of the episode I called him a Disney adult um and I am trying not to take this into Disney adult trope territory like you like Disney fine like what you like, and I think that that should apply to everything from Disney up until wherever the threshold of what is um, morally and legally acceptable is. Be interested in the shit that you care about and be proud about it. But also, don't be a weird little freak about it on TV in Toy Story pajamas and naming your kids after Disney characters. That's a bridge too far for me personally. That's where I draw my boundary Josh. And maybe let that be the moral of the episode, listener. Um, spend less time watching Finding Nemo and more time thinking about what your boundaries are and how to clearly articulate them to your loved ones. Or if you're Josh, you know, I don't know, what's a Disney movie? <laughs> spend, <laughs> spend less time watching Dumbo uh, and more time thinking about Gumbo and how you discuss it with your TV bride. I don't know. Does that make sense? Um, we haven't really talked about Mel. I like Mel. She's copying a weird edit from the show. I think that hearing in general a woman in her 40s who has Mel's kind of like every man appeal, like I can see how she would be a, a laugh and feel like a good hang for a lot of people who are watching this TV show. Like she seems like a regular enough person, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And to hear her talk about sex, even with this amount of frequency and copying this clear one-note edit from the show, is on the whole positive, even though, like, I think that the way that she personally talks about sex, I might find it to be quite cringe, you know? Um, but I'm not her and the audience that the show has probably carved out and has in mind when they're presenting her... And maybe there's like a wine mum out there who feels really seen by this. Obviously, we know that there's not. There's been a lot of hate for Mel online. But me personally, I'm team Mel for the time being until proven otherwise, like I expect to be proven otherwise by every fucking contestant on this show. Well, look, I've said quite enough. Uh, there'll be another one of these, I don't know, soon, Thursday, Sunday, who can say? Until then, for my dear friend, Xavier RN, I'm Max Quinn. Listener, we love you. Goodbye. Goodbye.